We're going to be in Micah chapter 4 this morning, so maybe a a little harder book to find, so I'll give you a little extra time. But if you go to like the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament and start flipping back a couple of books, you'll eventually find Micah. That's where we're going to be this morning. Well, there are some people in this world who are really good at waiting for a surprise to be revealed, and I'm not one of those people. Uh, I love to know what is going to take place in the future. And this, this characteristic about me is especially evident during Christmas time. Like there, for some reason, I love to know what my Christmas gifts are going to be in advance. When I was younger, uh, my brother and I learned uh, quickly that uh, our parents were the ones who bought the majority of our gifts. And we learned that if we snooped around the house in the weeks leading up to Christmas, that we would eventually find some gifts. And our parents learned that uh, we were doing this and that they would begin to lock some doors and some closet doors. And we knew they were back there, but a fatal flaw in their system was that they kept gift receipts. And I can remember uh, rummaging through the filing cabinet next to our computer one day and they had inconspicuously, you know, had a file in there called Christmas gifts. And I eventually, I think they know this, but uh, looked through and I saw the gift receipts for the presents I was going to be receiving that year. And of course, I, I was super excited. Like I had a tangible thing to look forward to. Uh, my knowledge of what was coming on Christmas could give me hope of like future joy that I was going to experience, even though it was, it was very consumeristic of me. Like my, my knowledge gave me great excitement. I had a tangible thing to look forward to. Of course, uh, the thing I realized was knowing in advance what I was going to receive did not mean that I would immediately receive those gifts, right? Like I, I still had to wait for them. And especially for me, it is hard to wait, even if it's waiting for a good thing. The people in our passage this morning are going to receive a message from the prophet Micah about the need to wait for something good and exciting while they experience a present trial, a present challenge. This prophet would speak of a future kingdom and a coming king that would bring them judgment against their enemies and peace among their people. And while this may seem strange as, you know, a message to preach or a book or a passage to turn to as we approach Christmas Day, I think what we're going to see is that the audience of our text this morning is actually getting a glimpse at their own gift receipts. Like Micah reveals to them the great hope that awaits all of God's people, which will find initial fulfillment and the greatest gift our world has known, like Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. I like to structure like a sermon around kind of a main idea. So if you're a note taker, this is something helpful to write down. But the main idea for this morning, command, it's, it's this, it's to wait for the kingdom, wait for the future kingdom, in your present trials by trusting in the coming king. Wait for the future kingdom in your present trials by trusting in the coming king. So 
to paint a little bit of context since we're just hopping right into the middle of a book here, uh, let me give a little background to where we're headed. So the people of God thousands of years ago had been chosen by God to be a nation called Israel. And over time, this one nation, Israel, split into two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And again, over time, those two kingdoms started to collapse as well. And the prophet Micah, in the first three chapters of this book, attributes the downfall of this northern kingdom, Israel, to the, the failure of its leaders, the sin of its leaders, uh, charging them with idolatry and charging them with injustice. And so the consequence for the northern kingdom, Israel, would be exile from their homeland. And Judah now warns them that, that Jude, or sorry, Micah warns Judah, the, the southern kingdom, that they are becoming like Israel and that they need to, to be warned of their future exile as well. Tar charge of idolatry and injustice on account of the leaders leads Micah to promise a very bad end for the capital city of Judah, which is Jerusalem. That is like total and utter destruction. It is this once great and prosperous and holy city being completely ruined that Micah then contrasts with an image of the future kingdom of God for this people on the verge of exile. And in the midst of their own tragedy, Micah promises them a future kingdom that will bring great joy and great peace to a hurting nation. So let's begin reading about this future kingdom in Micah chapter four, starting in verse one. Micah says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up swords against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So we'll pause there and Again, Micah 3 ends with this grueling picture of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And although Micah begins his book by speaking words of judgment again against this nation and to the selfish and greedy leaders of Judah, he now begins to turn and speak to those who are oppressed within this nation. And in the first verses here of Micah 4, we see some of the most incredible and beautiful depictions of what this coming holy city of God is going to look like and what it's going to be like in the last days. Yeah, I'm going to, I could sense that as well. Is that better? Okay, great. So 
Micah's giving us a view of what this coming kingdom is going to look like, what this future city of God is going to be. And this has long been the hope for the people of God, right? That they would live secure in a place that God himself lived in. And if we think about this, like this is a hope that is kind of intrinsically part of what it means to be a human. Like ever since sin and death entered our world, we have been longing and pining to return to what once was. So as we think about like this future kingdom here in Micah 4, be reminded that the hope that we're reading about this morning is not a hope that's reserved for just like the exiles of Judah and Israel of long ago. No, look at the end of verse one and the start of verse two. He says, peoples shall flow to the city and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Micah envisions a a return from destruction and exile that moves beyond the historical circumstance that he is prophesying in. And he's saying that that all of God's children, all of those who are descendants of Abraham by faith in God's promise will be included in this return to God's kingdom. And in this future kingdom, we see two actions that the Lord is going to perform for his people. So first in verse two, it says the Lord will teach us his ways. Like those who will live in God's future kingdom will desire instruction from the Lord so as to live a life of faith. If you're familiar like with the story of the Bible, you might remember how the people of God after the exodus from Egypt went to Mount Sinai and received the law from the Lord there. But the vision here in this future kingdom is not another giving of the law because the law that was given at Mount Sinai was insufficient to transform the hearts of the people. It was insufficient to cause them to love and to serve God wholeheartedly. In this new kingdom and under a new covenant then, God's instruction will be written on the hearts of his children. The second thing that we see the Lord perform for his people is that in verse three, God will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. So the right result of a people that gather to the Lord for instruction from all nations is then to scatter and make peace with those that they are living amongst, to to no longer fight one another with weapons of war. Instead, God will settle their disputes. So Israel had experienced peace like this in the past, like I think under King Solomon, they had experienced times of peace, but what is envisioned here is a new and better kingdom that is led by a new and better Solomon. And I think in the same way, like we too in our lives have each experienced seasons of peace, but we know, we know that the peace in our lives is an interrupted peace. Like we, we know that life can change in an instant. This, this happens and we realize this when what we think to be a minor pain turns out to be a major medical problem. We experience this when the excitement before an ultrasound is shattered by an undetected heartbeat. And even we experience this when what we expected of our lives slowly is crushed under the weight of unexpected delays and burdens and failures. (laughs) Like probably most of us don't need to be reminded that lasting peace is really hard to come by in this life. 
But no matter the chaos that we experience, we each need to be reminded of the coming hope for those who trust in the Lord so that we do not give in to despair. And here's the coming hope that Micah writes to a people on the verge of exile. So we pick up in verse six. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So after a period of suffering, God will assemble the lame, which is great news for my brother who's super uncool, right? So not, that, not that type of lame, right? God, God will bring back those who are lame, who have been afflicted, to those who are hurting, who are driven away from God's presence. And even more than that, we see in verse eight that this is not just a return of those who are hurting or afflicted to their native homeland, but it's a return of dominion or kingship to the people. Like this future kingdom will not be most importantly marked by a people who are wholeheartedly serving and worshiping the Lord or a resolution of conflict, but it's gonna be marked by a restoration of authority to a righteous and good king. Like a king over Jerusalem and all God's people who will fulfill the promise all the way back in Genesis 49 that Jacob made to his sons that a, a, a leader, a good lion from the tribe of Judah would arise and lead their people. So all in all, this is a future kingdom painted by Micah to be one of peace, to be one of power and joy for all people. Something worthy to place our hope in, in the future. We look forward in excitement to all sorts of things in this life. We look forward to you know, sporting events or anniversaries or the due date of a child. And we also look forward in less anticipation to some other things, like a difficult conversation, a performance review, a funeral, whatever it is. And I'm convinced really that Almost all of life is an experience of waiting for something in the future. Like we, we experience joy, we experience peace, we experience security, but more often than not, we are looking forward to future joys, to future peace, to future security. These future hopes give meaning and purpose to the sorrows that we currently face. And the hope of a coming kingdom marked by righteousness and peace should make us realize that, that the world that we live in is not our ultimate home. And so we, we can become the type of people that like soften our grip on the things of this world, the things that we cling on to for peace right now. Like, what does that look like? Well, perhaps it means that we would be the type of people that do not grow anxious about our incomes or our properties or our possessions, doing anything that we can to keep them in, in our hands, but instead we freely give of our time and resources to bless and uh, help others. We can invest in what lasts forever rather than what is corruptible. 
We could work toward peace with our friends and with our family and even our enemies. We could begin to uh, embody the kingdom that is coming by being the type of people who love and enjoy God's word. Like that is what a vision for the future can do to change us right now. We need this instruction. I need this instruction because we very clearly do not live in a world where we have this peace, where we have this security. We do not experience the reality of this kingdom right now. There are present trials that we all face. And Micah now turns to his audience again and reminds his readers of the present trials that they are facing. So we go now to talk about this present trial in verse nine. So it's immediately following Micah's proclamation of this coming kingdom for God's people where justice and peace prevail. And it's almost as if he's saying like, okay, wake up, because <laughs> we don't experience that right now. This vision for a future kingdom is just that. Like it's, it's a vision a hope for what will be when currently the people of God are on the precipice of like despair and disaster. So Micah says three times in the following passage, starting in verse nine, verse 11, and then verse one of chapter five, he uses this word now to kind of point them back to the reality that now they are facing difficult circumstances. So let's start in, in verse nine. Micah says this, he says, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." So why do you cry aloud? Why is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? These three questions are asked by Micah, not because he's like genuinely curious about their answers, but to reveal the distress of their situation. Like they're crying aloud because they are about to be ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land. There is a king in their midst, but it's as if their king has, has gone away because they're facing sure defeat. And again, it's as if their counselor, the Lord, has perished because they are no longer on the receiving end of his blessing. It is because of these realities that the people of Judah are now struck with pain like a woman in labor. And I've been in the room twice with a laboring mother, and from what I gather... It's not pleasant, like it is not pleasant. So this is a bad picture that Micah's painting here. But the encouragement of Micah for the people in verse 10 is kind of interesting. He says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. He doesn't say try to stop what is about to happen. In fact, they can't stop themselves from receiving this impending pain and suffering of exile in the same way that like a laboring woman can't stop a baby from being born. Like you can't hold it in. Um, Micah says, go out from this city, dwell in the open country, go to Babylon. Why? Because there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So if, if, for instance, you ever been to like a movie theater and the movie starts before the lights dim? You don't, you don't like that, right? And you wanna go tell somebody to turn the lights off because we don't go to the movies 
for the lights to stay on. Like that's because the darkness actually highlights the brightness of the screen. So in the same way, the Lord's intentions for his people is that the darkness of exile will shine forth the glory and the mercy of the Lord for them. God promises them not salvation from their suffering, but salvation through and despite their suffering. So we continue now to this present situation in verse 11. Micah says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord." their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So Israel and Judah at this point in the story of scripture are easy targets for their enemies. And now the nations, namely Assyria and and Babylon, are, are closing in on the city of Jerusalem to lay it to waste, to defile and destroy its temples, its structures, and its peoples. But although the nations gathered together for the purpose of destroying this nation, The sovereign Lord is the one whose overarching purpose gives comfort to his people. Like the Lord said that to be the one who's actually doing the one who is gathering together the nations. And it's his purpose that they themselves will be destroyed. Like how ironic is that? Micah Micah doesn't deny the fact that God's people are facing a difficult trial. It's just that God's intention for their suffering is far greater than anything they could have imagined. There's sunshine beyond the clouds of exile. And that sunshine of hope is the reality that God is the good and just judge is going to uh, defeat all of his enemies in the end. Rather than being oppressed, God's people will be the ones who now trample their enemies. The riches that were once possessed by them will be turned over to the ever just God. Man, what a, what a comfort it is to know that so often what humans intend for evil, God intends for our good. So often it is in the evil intentions and even the evil moments of our lives when we are surrounded on all sides by betrayal or abandonment or disease or death, that God reminds us that he's in control. We can trust him. For our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. So now we'll focus briefly on the last mention that Micah gives of this historical situation, which is found in verse one of chapter five. Kind of a strange break here, but he says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The scene is one of utter chaos and confusion. And at the center of this chaos is the desecration of the person who was supposed to be providing and protecting his people, who was supposed to be leading in wisdom and righteousness, the king of Judah, the king of Israel. And I think it's precisely the point of Micah to focus on the failure of the king at this present moment to protect his people so that when he introduces this coming king in the following verses, we can begin to see how incomparably great our God and our Savior is. So 
It's in the midst of chaos and with the prospect of losing all their inheritance and with the humiliation of their own king that Micah now speaks to the people with words of promise that find their fulfillment in the story of Christmas. A story of great reversal and unexpected triumph. Like a story of a coming king. Let's pick up reading about this coming king in verse 2. So in the midst of all this chaos, chaos, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name, the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah has compared the turmoil of the present situation with a, a laboring mother. And now he says that from Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is just Bethlehem and Judah, there's going to come forth a king. And it's almost like he's using this imagery of a laboring mother to announce the arrival of this king, like the arrival of a newborn child which maybe this doesn't sound too unfamiliar for you. I know like two weeks ago you heard from Isaiah seven fourteen how the Lord was going to bring about the savior of the world through the natural process of birth through the unlikely candidate of a virgin. And here in Micah, the birth of this king is promised to be from the town of Bethlehem in Judah, which is not surprising for us since we, we probably are familiar with the Christmas story, but would be very surprising at this time. There, there are greater cities and towns nearby that you would expect a king to come from. Like a, a king arising from Bethlehem would be as surprising as a president arising from Shreve. Like, no offense, it's just, the point is, it's unlikely. It's unlikely. It's unlikely. But, but God has used unlikely people and unlikely places for a long time. Once there was a young boy who was a shepherd, the youngest and smallest brother of a large family born in Bethlehem who was chosen by God to lead a nation. A once unlikely fit for the crown, King David then kind of became like a prototype for, for how God would humble the proud and exalt the humble in the future. So the coming king that Micah speaks of, being born in this unlikely place should be no surprise to the faithful children of God. His coming forth is from long ago, from ancient days, meaning that the, the arrival of this salvation-bringing king has been long anticipated, even from the beginning of humanity's descent into uh, with disunion with God. And here in verse 3, we see one of the greatest hopes that the rule of this king will bring, and that is the return of all God's people to, is to Israel. The exiles of Israel and Judah went through a dispersion, not just physically, but even interpersonally. Strife and conflict has settled into the relationships of all people. And here, the peace-bringing king comes to cause a return to the Lord's intention for all people. A return to unity. 
a return to peace that was lost in the Garden of Eden? And what is the manner in which the king will bring about this peace? Well, verse 4 says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Man, why didn't God's people have lasting peace in the past? Well, it's because their leaders were so worried about feeding themselves and fueling their own desires rather than caring for and protecting their people. But the imagery so often used of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament and of Jesus in the New is one of a shepherd who, as Psalm 23 says, leads us beside still waters, guides us along paths of righteousness, and comforts us with his rad and, rod and with his staff. One who, as Jesus said, lays down his life for the sheep whose very giving of himself is the means by which we are restored to relationship with God and receive security in, in, in his kingdom. I think this is why Micah ends this portion of this passage by saying at the beginning of verse five, he shall be their peace. Do we find this peace and policy making or good decision making or a new diet or a new workout plan or a parenting philosophy like not ultimately messiah is our peace the messiah is the one who breaks down walls of hostility and makes many people into one as paul says in ephesians chapter 2 but he is the one who is able and willing to actually make all things right in our broken world and all of this all of this uh, depiction of a coming king, I think, is why Matthew, in his gospel, pointed us back to this very passage in Micah chapter, chapters 4 and 5, really. He's trying to make sense of the birth of Jesus Christ, and so he comes to Micah to help explain it. Because in a world full of chaos, God sent a baby from a small and unlikely town to bring peace to the chaos. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Like he always has and he always will. And this was especially true in the revelation of Jesus Christ on Christmas night. He exalted a baby. And the unlikely rescuer that God sent points to the type of people that he has come to rescue. Like Jesus says, he does not come to heal the healthy, but to offer a cure of forgiveness for those who are spiritually sick. Jesus came to be with those who actually needed him most, those who are outcasts, those who are without hope in this world, those who they themselves are unlikely. Even in his birth in unlikely Bethlehem and even in the taking on of a human nature, we see the amazing reality that God chooses little things. God chooses little places. God chooses little people to be known by him and to know him. Because what matters most to God is not our power or our prestige or our importance or our influence, but what matters most to him concerning our relationship to him is, is our faith. Faith in Jesus provides us with a security that we receive like from a shepherd. It, it isn't a, a security that keeps us out of harm's way in this life. Like Micah's audience knew and lived that reality all too well. 
we each face the insecurities of failing health, of failing relationships, of uncertain dangers, but Jesus provides us with an ultimate security when our lives need it most, in our dying. Jesus saves us not from an earthly death, but for an eternal life through death. Even Christ did not save himself from death, but gave himself up to it in order to redeem us from the fear of death. And the confidence that we can have to face the uncertainties and the dangers of life, even death itself, is found in the resurrection of Christ from the tomb. In the same way that his birth from the womb gives us confidence that he knows our limitations and our temptations and has actually conquered all of those things so that we too can be conquerors through Christ. We can be inheritors of eternal and everlasting security. So what does this hope of future security bring us? Well, it brings us with peace now. Jesus provides us with peace now, not just as a shepherd, but also as our savior. Because whether you know it or not, our greatest need for peace in this life is not going to be fulfilled by like a comfy chair or a hefty paycheck or whatever. Because our greatest need is a restored relationship with a loving father who created us to know him and to love him. And the means by which we receive that peace is fulfilled in the blood of Christ. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, taking your place, bearing your punishment, you too can have hope for a greater kingdom and a gracious king ruling over you. If you relate in any way to how I wait for Christmas presents or wait for anything in the future, know that, that this morning, in our passage we've read, you have been presented with a gift, of, gift receipt of, of God's love for you. Like you can hold on to its hope even in the midst of the difficulties of life. So whatever your Christmas even looks like next Monday, whether it's full of joy or whether it's full of sorrow, be assured that there is a life of, of greater love, a life of greater peace and of greater joy beyond the horizon of this life through faith in Christ a place where we will live and rest with Jesus our King forever and ever. Father, hallowed be your name. God, your kingdom come. The kingdom you've described here in this passage, we ask that it would come and come make right all that is wrong in our world. We thank you that in the celebration of Christmas, we are reminded of the great lengths that you have gone to restore peace to those who were once far off. God, I pray that we would each be a people, each be a person that trusts in the, the hope of a coming kingdom and the hope of your future reign here on this earth. God, we thank you for the blood of Christ that has provided us with this peace and given us a hope for the future even in the midst of our, our circumstances, which at this moment might seem dire. But God, we know that each of them are in your hands and your intentions and your ways are far greater than our own. May we have full confidence in your loving care and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.